This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Good morning and welcome to the Investment Migration Report. I'm joining you here from New York City and my co-host Priya Malik is joining us from Dubai, UAE. Uh, I think we're going to jump right into it. Today we're going to discuss direct EB-5 investments versus uh, regional center EB-5 investments. That's a topic that's uh, the topic du jour in EB-5, especially given that uh, you know, uh, last week on June 30th, we had the regional center program expired. So to, just to jump into it, uh, Priya, do you mind just jumping in and give us a quick uh, history over the direct EB-5 uh, program versus the, the regional center program and how it all, they both act this? So the EB-5 program was created in 1990 by the U.S. government. Um, and in 93, they introduced a pilot program, which at the time they called the Immigrant Investor Pilot Program, which is now called the Regional Center Program. So the original EB-5 program allowed for investors to invest into a business, a new commercial enterprise, and through that investment, the investor, the investor's spouse, and any children under the age of 21 could obtain a green card. Under the 93 adjustment with the pilot program introduced, they could then pool investors' money under investment vehicles called regional centers, and through that investment, the investors could then um, gain a green card for the investor, the investor spouse, and any children under 21, but it was more of a passive investment. So that's sort of the background and history. Since then, because the regional center is a pilot program, it's had to be reauthorized or renewed from time to time, whereas the original EB-5 program is statutory, so that does not require reauthorization. As you mentioned, on June 30th, there was the reauthorization, which didn't happen, so Senate failed to approve the bill. Um, prior to June 30th, and there was a sunset clause, so therefore the regional center program expired. So as of right now, the regional center program is expired, but the permanent EB-5 program, which is the direct program, continues to be in existence. And and for our audience, I think it's important that it it wasn't just that Senate needed to authorize it, both both houses, because we have bicameral um, uh, Congress, both houses, you know, the House and Senate would have to have approved it, and then the president would have to sign it into law. And I think for our audience, it's important for them to, to understand that, you know, when when Congress approves a new bill, which is the EB-5 program, you know, there's very few sentences that explain the parameters of the program. So the way we describe it is they paint with a broad brush. And then the agency, which is part of the executive uh, agency, it's, a, it's part of the, you know, underneath the president's authority and, you know, like 180 other agencies, they basically come up with the, with the details of the program. So the, the, you know, the agency, USCIS in this case, they can, you know, change the parameters of the program, but in order for the program to be reauthorized, it's something that Congress has to uh, approve. And, and in this case, Congress didn't, didn't, you know, fail to do that in time, so the program expired last week. Hence, you know, they have to go back to the, you know, to the negotiating table and both on the House side and the Senate side negotiate something. It would have to be signed into law before the regional center program can, can come back. 
But I think there was a short period of the last week that where, you know, given the lawsuit that we talked about in the previous episode, um, the, the price, you know, was ruled by a federal magistrate that the price, you know, that, that the rule, you know, the previous ruling was invalidated and the price was temporarily 500000 but then the program expired. So on the on the direct program, I think the question many of our audience have, is it 900000 plus or $1.8 million if it's in the TEA or not, or is it 500000 and a million uh, currently? That's a great question. And I believe that when the judge made their ruling back on June 22nd, it affected the EV-5 program as a whole. So it includes both the direct and the regional center program and effectively brought the price back down to its pre-2019 investment amount of 500,000. So that's both for um, both for the direct program and regional center, if within a targeted employment area, it is 500,000 as of right now. So I know there's we a have, lot. We haven't heard anything else from the government yet. So. Right, I think that, you know, in the next week or so, I think we'll probably get some clarity from Department of Homeland Security. But I think the question that the audience has today, and I want to rehash and let me, let me know if I'm speaking correctly. Currently, both the regional center and the direct program are at 500,000 and, and 1 million except for the direct program you have unlimited authorization by congress because it doesn't have expiration date but currently you can't do the regional center program because it's not authorized by by the senate and the house correct well right so uscis actually announced on their website they put out an official announcement that they're not going to be taking regional center applications after july 1st um, as the program expired on june 30th but they will continue to take direct applications. So what does that mean? I mean, we've discussed in previous episodes what that means, but do you have any insight into what that would mean for people who applied prior to June 30th under the regional center program? What's interesting about it is the regional center program is actually more popular. 95% of people apply through the regional center program. Only 5% of people apply through the direct program for various reasons. Um, the regional center program has just gained a lot of popularity since 2008. And so um, I think people are just so familiar with the regional center program that they think that is what the EB-5 program is and they don't realize that there is this other option or this other part of the program that's available to people as well. So do you have any insight into what's going to happen with people's applications who applied prior to June 30th under the regional center program? Right. I mean, this is the, the interesting question that I think a lot of investors currently have and there's definitely a lot of confusion, a lot of gray areas, even, you know, very prominent EB-5 immigration attorneys that know this stuff inside out, there's definitely some confusion and some uh, some questions that need to be answered by both uh, you know, USCIS and DHS, hopefully in the coming days. But, you know, I think a lot of people were under the impression that if there was a lapse in the program, that the USCIS would continue taking applications and just basically put those applications in a pile and wait for the program to be reauthorized before they would process those applications. But in this case, as you mentioned last week, the USCIS has said that new I-924 applications and I-526 applications, they will not accept. And I think the difference between this time and previous times where, you know, the government was shut down or there was a lapse, you know, I think one day we had a six-day lapse where the government was shut down. And the difference this time is that in the prior times, there was a temporary shutdown because EB-5 was, you know, was added to continue resolution. So when the government, you know, the, the House and the Senate hadn't agreed on a budget, 
EB5 was temporarily shut down. The government was shut down. So it was a temporary shutdown. Uh, and, and they knew that once the budget would get reapproved and the government would have its budget, EB5 was included in that continued resolution, so it would get picked back up. So hence, they still continue to take applications. What's different this time is that the regional center program was not part of continued resolution and it was stripped out. So when the program sunset and the Senate and the House failed to reauthorize the program, it's deemed that it's not a temporary um, phenomenon. This is actually a permanent because the program is no longer valid. Hence is why the USCIS is you know, putting out the guidance out there that they're not taking existing applications. And hopefully in the next coming days, the Senate and the House would meet. You know, they, they would hopefully come up to a resolution to continue the program or allow it to sunset. But there will be some more guidance, hopefully in the coming days, from DHS and USCIS in terms of uh, new applications. But more importantly, because the program has sunset and the USCIS and DHS haven't really come out with any kind of guidance or, or a grandfathering clause, what it would mean, currently, even investors that you know might have invested a year and a half, two years ago, that are currently in the I-526 stage, technically lose their immigration benefits because there's not a you know grandfathering clause or there's not um, you know a solution for what do we do for the investors that are in the pool. We are hoping that obviously the Senate and the House one would figure out a solution and meet in the middle and figure out uh, you know an extension of the program. And if they don't, they would have some kind of a sunset clause or some kind of grandfathering clause to make sure that the existing investors have already you know, invested, created the jobs, done the economic activity that they promised to do, would still continue to get the benefits. You know, those investors kept their end of the bargain. The U.S. government needs to keep their end of the bargain. So that's kind of the what's happening. But as of today, there really isn't any guidance, and we're hoping in the next, in the coming days there will be guidance in terms of what happens to those investors, and more importantly, what happens to potential new investors. So I think we don't know anything for sure yet, obviously, but. I think what you're saying is there is still a general consensus that there will be an agreement that's made and hopefully they will reauthorize the program so that these previous investors don't run into issues. Correct. I mean, as you know, not, not to get into the details of the politics of it, we've discussed it with Robert Devine and with Aaron Grau from IAUSA in the previous episodes, but, you know, basically the, you know, the, the, the can is, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the can has been kicked down the road on EB-5 since September of 2015. It's almost a six-year mark where, you know, they, they've had many short, I think, I believe, 21 short-term reauthorizations. And this time around, uh, you know, one side of the aisle, which, you know, it's not really the Republican-Democrat side of the aisle, but Grassley and Leahy and Senator Coons, who introduced this bill, um, they, they stripped the EB-5 program from continuing resolution. That way, either, you know, a new reauthorization of a new program with all the integrity measures would get approved, which would reauthorize, you know, the regional center program for five years, or the program would die. It was basically, uh, you know, a strategic move to force, you know, everyone to either vote for it or against it. And now that, you know, basically that game of chicken, for lack of a better term, has ended in the worst possible scenario, which is EB-5 has expired, I think, you know, there's going to be definitely some new negotiations. Uh, in terms of what the new program would look like and what the various different parties are interested. I mean, as, as stakeholders, you know, members of IIUSA, members of Investment Coalition, all the EB-5, you know, um, um, investors and, and stakeholders, we all want the reauthorization of the program. But at the end of the day, we only have suggestions that the people that have the power to reenact the program are, you know, really in the Senate. And they have ideas on what they think the program should look like and what they want the program to look like. And, you know, um, hopefully they'll, they'll come to, to a solution here in the next coming, you know, few days. But if they don't, the program does sunset, which 
brings up a new opportunity, the, the direct investment program, which we're talking about today. It's not perfect. It has a lot of challenges. It's not as easy to administer as the regional center programs. There are definitely some challenges, but you know, it is a solution. And I think um, one of the things that I think our audience wants to know are what are some of the challenges? What makes the direct program uh, different than the regional center program? And, and I think for some investors, it may be a better fit, but for other investors, it may not be as good as a fit and for various projects as well. So maybe you want to um, maybe pre, uh, pre jump in and, and explain what are some of the big differences between the regional sure. center program and I program. think there, there are a few things that we can jump into. Um, I think first and foremost, job creation is one of the biggest differences between the regional center program and the direct program. So in the direct program, you can only really count direct jobs. Whereas in the regional center program, the government allows for the counting of direct, indirect, and induced jobs. So that creates a whole lot of jobs that they can count under the regional center program, which they can't necessarily count under the direct program. So in the direct program, it often comes down to operational jobs, which are counted, which are considered direct jobs. Whereas in regional center projects, jobs that can be counted can be everything from construction, engineering, operations, and even induced jobs. Yeah, I think maybe for our audience, it's important to, to explain you know, how that works. So, you know, in, in, in the you know, regional center program, you'll have, um, for example, a $300 million hotel. And that $300 million hotel will create you know, based on the uh, economic model that the USCIS uses, which most regional center operators use the same economic models to come up with the same answers, that, that $300 million hotel will create something between, you know, 4,500 to 5,000 jobs, depending on the location. But that, but the direct jobs in that, you know, that hotel are maybe, you know, the, the, the wait staff, the, the, you know, the, from the restaurants, you know, the, the, the cleaning crew and, you know, the operational people, less than 300 people. So if you did that same program through the, re, you know, through the direct program, you may only be able to do 30 investors. But if you did that, you know, uh, through the regional center program, obviously there's a lot more jobs. And, and then, you know, let, let's, you know, and, and by the way, hotels generally create a lot more operational jobs, but let's go to multifamily apartments, which are very popular EB-5 projects. Most apartments don't even have 10 employees. I mean, they'll have some you know, uh, you know, some, some receptionists and they'll have a few, uh, you know, maintenance people and they'll probably have less than 10 employees. So if, if you did a, you know, $100 million apartment project where through the, re, you know, through the regional center program, you could potentially raise 100 investors. Now you may only be able to raise one or two investors for that. So it makes it a lot more complicated for those, for the larger type projects. But there are projects that do create a lot of direct, you know, restaurant projects, franchise projects. So maybe, uh, Priya, if you want to jump in and talk about what are the typical regional center programs versus the typical direct uh, yeah. investments that you're seeing in the market today. And I think that's why most of the regional center projects are these large-scale development or construction projects. Like you said, oftentimes they're hotels, multifamily residential, neighborhoods, commercial projects, large-scale development projects, which are creating a lot of construction jobs so that those jobs can be counted as well. And I just wanted to go back just a minute and talk about how under the regional center program, the government actually uses a formula to count jobs. 
So they utilize the formula according to the budget of the project. Whereas if the money is being spent, they assume that the jobs have been created according to this formula. And I won't get into the nitty gritty of the formula because it might complicate things for the purposes of this discussion, but essentially it's a formula that's being used. Whereas for direct projects, those employees actually have to be on W-2. So they have to be on the payroll of the company in order to be counted as a direct job. So that's a huge difference as well. And that's why in regional center projects, you're able to count these indirect and induced jobs, whereas in direct projects, you're not able to. And so for these reasons, like I said, regional center projects are often these big, large scale projects, whereas direct projects oftentimes, because you can only count direct jobs, which might be far and few between, they're often smaller locations of franchises, food and beverage, smaller scale businesses or projects which are taking on one investor at a time and therefore they're able to count all those jobs and allocate all those jobs for that one investor that's investing in that one commercial enterprise. Yeah, I think the other thing that's important to, to mention, Priya, I think um, you know, from an immigration attorney perspective, you know, when you do the I-526 application and you're showing the jobs, you're relying on this economic model. And then the way that they verify that, you know, later on at the IA-29 stage, when they're removing your condition and giving you a permanent green card, is did you spend, like for example, this $300 million apartment, did you spend the $300 million? Or did you spend enough, you know, maybe you only need to spend $100 million to get all the jobs you needed for the message, but did you at least invest $100 million? So you actually provide all the receipts, all the construction receipts, and you, you provide this IA-29 packet that based on that economic model, based on that job creation, you know, whether it's a rims to implant or one of the other economic models, you show, okay, here's the, the job code for, I spent $15 million on concrete and here's the receipts. We actually spent $15 million on concrete. And the government checks off on that and you know, they verify all of that at the IA-29 stage. But now for the direct program, you, know, you have to show the W-2. Did you employ at least 10 actual employees? They don't care that you, know, you created all this economic activity through you know concrete and through steel and through the labor now they want to see did you employ these 10 employees and you know some of the things i think it's important for investors to, to note the rule says that they have to be full-time employees which means they have to work at least 35 hours a week and i believe they have to be u.s citizens and then you have to count those w-2 and so at the ia-29 stage you have to make sure that you know that could be five years down the road that you have you know proper documentation that all of the employees that you had hired at that project, hence you had the minimum 10 employees, they had worked at least 35 hours a week, they were U.S. citizens and you created those economic activities. Any other nuances that, that you know, investors need to be cognizant of? And what do immigration attorneys, how do they, you know, you know they essentially keep track of all this and document all this so then, you know, at I-29 stage, the government doesn't you know, question the, the job creation and they can actually get their condition removed and they get their permanent green card. Well, the other part of it is, um, or something that a lot of investors ask is how long do the jobs have to last for? Do they have to last for the entire period of I-526, consular processing IE-29 through a five-year period or how long do they have to last for? Um, and that's a great question because the government doesn't want people coming in and creating jobs for a week or two and counting those jobs. So the jobs actually have to last for, I believe, a minimum of two years, um, but they don't have to be created right away. So they don't have to be created the day that I-526 gets approved. 
And that's something important for people to realize as well. So these are real full-time positions that have to be created for U.S. people in order to be counted. Now, what a lot of lawyers that I've spoken to recommend as well is they don't recommend that only 10 jobs be created. They do recommend that there be a little bit of a buffer, maybe 12 to 14 jobs being created for each direct project. Because when the government goes through again, even though everyone's on W-2, they will look at the amount of hours, the position employed, and they will look at different things like that. And it's good to be able to have that buffer in case they decide not to include one of the positions or not to include one of the employment um, opportunities. And so you have that buffer there so that you can get your 10 jobs allocated to your application. And then, you know, that, that's a great point for you. I think even even on the regional center program, many regional centers leave a you know, margin for error, you know, 10%, 20%, 30%. Most regional centers, I think as a matter of practice, they leave a 30% cushion. So if they need to create 10 jobs per investor, they're really creating 13 jobs per investor. Or, you know, if they need to create 100 jobs, they're creating 130 to, to provide that cushion, you know, on the number of jobs in case, you know, the government miscalculates or someone, there, you know, there's some kind of rounding error to make sure you know that it, you know it doesn't uh, cost the investors, and you know it could potentially cost all the investors their their green card. But that's something regional centers pay close attention to, and they're very cognizant of. In fact, in many cases, sometimes they create 100% more jobs than they, they need to. Mm -hmm. uh, but 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 another thing is even even on the regional center program, if you you know if if the, the construction project is less than two years, you don't get to count the in, indirect and induced. You get to count the direct jobs. But the caveat is you get to count the direct construction jobs. So that $300 million hotel I gave as an example, you know, they may have, you know, six, you know, 4,500 or 5,000 jobs, but there's still 1,500 or 2,000 direct construction jobs where now on the, if you did that same project on the direct, you maybe only get, you know, 10 investors or 15 investors because you only get to count the W-2 employees that actually worked on the project as opposed to use an economic model that extrapolates and says, okay, a million dollars in construction activity or a million dollars in concrete, a million dollars in, 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 in plumbing equals this many jobs. Now you again have to count all those W-2s and you have to keep track of them. You have to make sure all those employees worked at least 35 hours. You have to make sure that they're residents or citizen. So all of those need to be you know, kept up with, but it is still an opportunity to do those type of programs, but I think it probably makes a lot more sense for um, you know, for for people that are administrating these projects, to pick smaller size projects because a massive project like a three hundred million dollar hotel is not going to generate a lot of direct jobs. So, what are some of the um, the type of regional center or, or sorry, non regional center direct investment type of investments do you that you see out in the market? A lot of times, they're like I said, they're much smaller scale projects. So they're are, of course, I have seen direct projects that are hotel projects, but they're getting a very small amount. They're, they would be smaller hotel projects, and they're getting a very small amount of money from EB-5 investors, sometimes even just one or two investors from EB-5, and the rest is coming from construction uh, loans or um, you know, developer equity or whatever it may be, they're getting other financing in the capital stack and they're not relying so heavily on EB-5 for the reasons that we just discussed. There's not as many jobs to go around. But I think um, most of the direct projects are much smaller in scale. So like I mentioned, franchises, food and beverage outlets, things where um, one person could invest in like a location of a food and beverage outlet 
and their 500,000, which at the moment is 500,000, could be enough to fund that one location. And the jobs being created are enough to allocate to that application to allow for it to go through for EV5. So much smaller scale projects like food and beverage outlets, for example. And another thing for you, I think it's important, I think a lot of our audience probably would probably have a question for, a uh, question on this topic, and it's, um, you know, let's say you're an executive and you're living in you know, some country outside the U.S. and you want to invest in the EB-5 program, but you don't necessarily want to do this full time. You want to, you know, have your money work for you. You're, you know, you're, you're running your own business or you're, you know, you have your own, uh, you know, um, company that you're working at. And, you know, the direct uh, EB-5 investments typically tend to be the smaller franchises or restaurants. Um, do you have to go and work, you know, 60 hours a week to administer that project? Or can you have, you know, someone administered for you and just by you, by virtue of being a limited partner or an equity you know, investor in LLC, you qualify for the EB-5 uh, investment? I think generally in, in the regional center program, it's more hands-off. You invest and the investment is handled by you know, other, you know, whether it's, you know, the people that are ministering the hotel or, or, or the ministering department, you're just, you know, actively involved in the, in the operation of the investment just by you being an equity investor. But on the direct investment, I think a lot of our uh, listeners probably have a question. Do they actually have to go work at one of these franchises or, you know, are there opportunities where they don't, they just invest and, you know, they can still do their day job? So that's true. The regional center programs are very passive, hands-off investments. Um, because there, there are so many EB-5 investors, they're large scale and they have experienced um, companies and individuals looking after that investment and the development of the project. And it's important to note that there is a big misconception that with the direct program, just by virtue of it even being called a direct program, that it's an active program where you have to be actively involved in the management. But with the direct program you can do it both ways there are individuals who invest in their own businesses who want to be actively involved who want to gain the profit from their businesses and that's the route they choose to take for eb5 but under the direct program you can also be a little bit more hands-off so that's not one of the requirements the eb5 program has certain requirements that is investing the minimum amount which right now in a tea targeted employment area is five hundred thousand investing in a new commercial enterprise and creating the 10 jobs those are the requirements basically for EB-5, whether you do a regional center program or a direct. One of the requirements is not that you have to be actively involved in the day-to-day -day management of your business, like some of the other programs we see, um, for example, in E2. Um, so I think with the EB-5 program, even if you're doing a direct, you can be a little bit more hands-off as long as the business is running and you fulfill the other requirements of the EB-5 program. And I think for our audience, you know, another thing I think it's important to note, you know, uh, um, you know, franchise may be a great fit for certain investors, and it may be a horrible fit for certain other investors. And I think it's important for us to, to explain to the audience what all that means and what our requirements they have. I mean, typically, a lot of the franchise uh, opportunities are in restaurants. And, you know, restaurants, by virtue, in the United States are very risky investments. I think there's a statistic, something like 90% of all restaurants in the first three years fail. But, you know, there are some very established, um, you know, established franchises that are great franchises and, you know, they do really well in the United States. But then 
the, the important part becomes location. You can have a franchise in a really good location, let's say on Times Square in New York, that you know does really, really well, and then you can have a franchise in a rural area in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee, for example, and may not do as well. So you know some of those things are really, really important for investors to do their homework on or partner with people and, and you know that are experts in that. Uh, can you talk about you know some of the investments that you, you see? Do you see more restaurant franchises? Do you see other franchises? Do you see hotel franchises? What are some of the typical direct investments that you're seeing out in the market today? So I think you're totally right. It comes down to the management. It comes down to the location. It comes down to all these things. I think one of the things that's going to be helpful right now at this point in time is along with the price of EB-5 being rolled back to 500,000, we also have the TEA regulations being rolled back as well. So we're, we're looking back at the old targeted employment area regulations, which are a lot more lax than the newer regulations. And therefore, it would be easier to get these franchise locations in targeted employment areas so they fit the $500,000 criteria but they're still actually in areas with a lot of footfall and traffic where a franchise could actually do well. So that actually right now is very helpful. Um, and then also investing with companies or franchises or umbrella companies that have a lot of experience, for example, global locations, um, hundreds of locations in the US where they have experience managing and operating their own corporate franchises and they're successful at doing that. I think it's important just how when investors are doing their homework and due diligence on regional center projects as well, where they, where they have to look at the business plans, they have to look at the histories of the companies that are involved. It's the same kind of due diligence you would do on a direct project where you want to see who you're actually investing with. What kind of company is it? Is it publicly listed? Is it private? Um, what's their experience like? How many years have they been around for? Have they had other EB-5 investors before? So these are all important things to look at, whether you're doing an RC project or whether you're doing a direct project. And I think, again, it's important for everyone to understand that this all could change, you know, tomorrow. It really depends. You know, USCIS as the agency could come up and reenact the rules that they enacted on November 21st of 2019. And, you know, there's, there's differences, opinions, whether they have to go through a comment and notice period under the American, uh, under the Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, and there's, you know, there's different views. One view says that they don't because when they ran the notice and comment period, it was during the Obama administration and that, uh, you know, Leon Rodriguez was appointed legally at that point. And then there's other uh, opinion that no, if they re-up the rules, they would, they would have to go to common notice period and it may take, you know, three months to, you know, six months for them to reenact it. But technically, you know, the agency could, you know, change the, you know, the TEA requirements back to what it was before June 30th, or I'm sorry, you know, June 23rd or whatever that, the date of that ruling was, or they can come up with a new rule. And then another option is Congress could, you know, the Senate and the House could come up with new parameters and reauthorize the regional center program and new rules for TEAs overall. Uh, so both of those two things can happen, but just to rehash for investors, you know, what, uh, or, or the listeners, what, what the previous rules used to be, uh, the TEA rules was basically any census tract or a group of census tracts co who collectively have an unemployment rate that is 150% of the overall national average 
or a rural area. And a rural area means a city that has a population of 20,000 or less. But the caveat is that city cannot be in an MSA or a metropolitan statistical area. So what does that mean? You may, you know, there may be a city, you know, just north of New York that has, you know, 10,000 population, but that city is grouped together as the New York Metroplex. That's, you know, in the MSA, even though that city may have 10,000 population, it wouldn't qualify. It would have to be rural, meaning it's not attached to, it's not in a county that's part of an MSA, and it has to have less than 20,000 population. So that's one way to qualify. And then the other one is 150% of the national average. The new rule is, you know, restricts how many census tracts you could put together. But the old rule, which today is the law of the land, is, you know, it could be 50 census tracts, it could be 100 census tracts. You can essentially gerrymander a bunch of census tracts together to get the required result, which means it would have to have an unemployment rate of 150% of the national average. And that does make it easier. A lot of people over the years have asked me, you know, when they see projects in cities like New York City or Los Angeles, and they're wondering how is this considered a targeted employment area? This is a huge city. And it's just like what you explained with the census tracts. That was the older TEA rule, and it did make it a lot easier for metropolitan areas because of the surrounding areas or their surrounding census tracts to be included or to also be considered a targeted employment area. And for those of us you know, may, that may not know what a census tract is, a census tract is essentially a box that is used for elections, typically it has a population of about 4,000 people, and every city is divided into certain census tracts. So that's how uh, the U.S. Census Bureau kind of keeps track of the population, unemployment rates, and that's how you know, um, the government agencies that administer the EB-5 really focus on job creation and focus on unemployment rates and statistics of the population based on those same census tracts that are used for, uh, for elections by the Census Bureau. Right. So I think at the moment, um, you know, it's a good thing to point out that, yes, the regional center program is expired for the time being. We don't know for how long. Um, and the direct program is an option but that it's important to still do your due diligence on what you're investing in, irrespective of whether it's a regional center or a direct. Correct. And I think, you know, a lot of investors and a lot of our audience listeners are probably have a question in regard to, okay, you know, will a direct investment be a right fit for me? Let's say I'm an executive in a, you know, advertising agency, let's say in Vietnam, or let's say I run a fund in India, now I, I want to do a direct investment. Do I have to quit my day job and go work in a subway franchise, for example, or you know, Pizza Hut or one of these franchises? Or are there opportunities where I could be a passive investor and still do my day job, which is how I make money, and still qualify for direct investment? Could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, so definitely, like I mentioned before, um, with the direct program, you could do it both ways. You can invest in something where you become actively involved in the day-to-day -day management of the business, or you could just invest in something that is a new commercial enterprise where you're not actively involved in the day-to-day -day management, but perhaps there's a company that manages it for you, or perhaps you have employees that are managing and working there for you. Um, one of the interesting things to remember is that the current processing times for EB-5 are not that short. They can span a couple years or more at this point. So how, People ask me, how does one start a business in the U.S. without first having that status? So applying for a direct program, but having to wait 
say that 24 to 36 months to get their I-526 approved before they're able to even start their business. And I think that's one of the issues with doing an active direct program where you're actually going in and actively managing your business is that you're submitting a business plan, but you're submitting a business plan for essentially two years out. By the time an officer takes a look at your business plan, two years have gone by and it might not be as relevant as it was two years ago. That being said, there are options of direct programs where you could invest passively, where the business gets started for you, and where there's companies that are actually operating and managing the business. So before you even get your approval, the business is up and running. Um, and I think when it comes to approval time, that helps keep the business plan more relevant as well because the officers can then see that the business has already been up and running and generating profit, for example. Right. So another question I think a lot of investors have asked me, and I, I was speaking with an immigration attorney who said he was filing 450 direct applications in the coming weeks, which is crazy. I mean, these are the kind of numbers that EB-5 was, was generating in direct investment back in 2014, 2015, when at the height of the, the EB-5 boom. But, you know, let's say, you know, I wanted to invest in a, in a direct program. And right now the rule is, you know, 500,000 and a much more relaxed, you know, TEA and job creation or TEA rule, which is basically the pre-November uh, 2019 rule. Um, so I, I filed my business plan. I get everything done. Let's say, you know, July 1st, the USCIS changes the rule back to 900,000 and 1.8 million and a harder TEA rule. How will my investment be impacted? Do I get um, grandfathering because I filed it with the correct rule at the time, or are they going to ask me for to invest an extra four hundred thousand? Or if I'm not in the TEA under the whatever the new rule would be, would I lose my my status? That's an interesting question, and I think it's something that relates to both the regional center program and the direct program right now because there are a lot of people that have applied under the five hundred thousand dollar investment prior to June 30th and with the older TEA rules as well based on this litigation that happened and based on the summary judgment that came out on June 22nd and you know will there be something will will, will there be a stay order or something that comes up from the government that stops all these applications from going through at 500,000 or going through at the older TEA rules and I think that's something we just don't know yet. You know, we would like to hope that retrospectively something like that wouldn't happen, but I don't. I think it's too early for us to answer that question. Yeah, I mean, uh, great point for you. I think by the time our audience watches this episode, we could have some clarity, but un until then, I think we want to um, ask some hypotheticals because I think a lot of people messaged us uh, you know, emailed us, asked us all kinds of questions, what's going to happen to our existing investments, what would happen to our prospective investors, and I invest with 500000 do I have to invest with 900000 I think in the coming days we'll, we'll get some clarity. Um, the, the other question I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of investors have is, you know, are there different processing uh, queues for the direct investment versus the, the I-526 applications for regional center? Have you uh, experienced, uh, you know, if there's any difference in those queues? I've heard that the direct is a little bit faster, but in all actuality, I, I think it's the same thing. I think the processing time and the processing, uh, the actual process that the investor goes through 
is the same either way, and I believe that the files go into the same queue. What are what are some of the other um, main differences that you see between the direct uh, and the indirect? I mean, we've talked about capital stack and you know different types of projects. That's it. We talked about job creation. Um, you know, are there any differences in the TEA rules? Are there any other uh, differences, main differences that we should discuss? One thing that comes to mind, um, and maybe you could weigh in on this as well, is government oversight. So I think with the regional center program, you know, people. I've seen a lot of investors that do believe that a regional center is a government body. We both know that not to be true. Um, but I do think a lot of times people are marketing these as government bodies and that regional centers are, are government bodies. Um, they're surely authorized by the government to operate as regional centers and they're licensed by the government and they have to go through that procedure to get that license. But they're definitely not government bodies. At the end of the day, they are private administrative bodies. Um, and with the direct program as well, they might be publicly listed companies, but these are private projects. They're not run by the government. So I think that's also something else that we have to look at. That regional centers, they're not government bodies, but they do report to the government. They do have reporting requirements. Whereas under a direct program, there aren't necessarily those reporting requirements that are necessary on an annual basis. Right, I think, great great point, Priya. I think, um, you know, the, the, the legal definition of a regional center is a for-profit or a non-profit entity that essentially groups together these investors and helps administer these, these job creation activities in these regions, uh, hence the regional center program. Um, you know, some, some, some regional centers are administered by economic developments of a certain cities or certain states, and there are nonprofit, but majority of regional centers are for-profit entities. And again, you know, I guess they're kind of a quasi, um, you know, government entity. They're not. They're actually private entities, but um, they're licensed, so, you know, they have to go some, through some scrutiny. They have to go through an I-924 application for a regional center and get authorized. They have to give examples of the project. I think another um, reason that investors feel much more comfortable with a regional center project is because typically a regional center project, you know, because it, it's a group, larger group of investors, they, they kind of do their homework and start the project much earlier. So they file an exemplar and typically, you know, before the investors invest or you know, even shortly thereafter, they, they get an approved exemplar, which means uh, it's basically their, the project itself is approved. Now the only part that needs to be approved is the investor themselves, their source of funds. Uh, so, you know, in, in any I-526 application, there is the, the project side, which is 15, 1600 pages worth of documents. And then there's the investor side, which is, you know, a couple hundred pages of documents. So when the exemplar is approved, uh, you know, the first part, you know, the project side is approved as long as the investor gets their source of funds and, you know, where their money came from and they didn't have any political issues or, you know, issues that would cause them to get their, you know, their source of funds denied, you know, the project, you know, they would they would get their I-526 approved and then at the IA-29 stage, they have to show that they created those jobs to, to get their permanent green card. But uh, can you talk about exemplars? Do, you know, what happens in a direct investment? Can you still file an exemplar? Is it, is it expensive to do, you know, just maybe if you can weigh in on that? Yeah, I want to I want to just clarify about exemplars because a lot of people, a lot of investors have been told 
that an exemplar is essentially a be-all and end-all. It's this magical government approval that projects get, and it's the best thing to have on a project. And while it's great, I do think having an exemplar in a project is great because, like you said, it sort of provides a pre-approval for the documentation. It's not a guarantee that your I-526 is going to be approved. The government still has to look at your source of funds, your portion of the application, um, and the application as a whole. So it's not a guarantee that your I-526 will be approved. And I think that's a big misconception that when people hear that a project has an I-924, they see it as a pre-approval and they see it as more of a guarantee that the, their application will somehow get approved. And that's not what an I-924 is, right? It's a pre-approval on the business documentation or the project documentation, which is only half of the application. Um, so I-924s are great to have, but they're definitely not the be-all and end-all. They're not the only thing you should look for on a project. I-924s do take quite a long time for projects to obtain. The processing time for I-924s has gotten a lot longer, just like the processing time for I-526 and investor applications has gotten a lot longer. And therefore, a lot of projects don't have the time to obtain an I-924 before going out and getting investors and starting a project. So while an I-924 is great, it's not necessarily the only thing an investor should look at. And because a lot of direct projects are smaller scale and they start sort of right when the investor makes the investment, a lot of direct projects might not have an I-924 approval, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad project. Again, it's important for the investor to do their due diligence on who they're investing with, what the project is, what the timeline is, and look at everything as a whole before they make an investment. Great point. Um, I think, Priya, a lot of a lot of my friends they live in other countries, they're entrepreneurs and business people. Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, they, they, they're so hands-on, they want to do their own EB-5 project. They want to administer their, whether it's direct or regional program. And I think that, that a lot of investors, and, I, and, I, and I, I tell them that, you know, whether you're doing a direct investment or a regional center program, it's much easier to get someone uh, to, to administer all the, you know, legal documents and all the back-end work and all the back and forth with the USCIS and all the approvals because I think a lot of investors don't understand there's significant legal costs to set up a regional center, to set up the documents. You know, if you're doing a 500,000 investment, you may have to invest another three, 400,000 just in economic model. You know, those things are expensive. You know, it usually costs about $10,000 or more to do economic uh, model. You have to create your business plan. The business plan could cost you anywhere from five to $10,000. You have to get a securities attorney to draft your documentation. That could be anywhere from 30 to 50,000. So there's significant upfront costs. And when you're doing, a, let's say a $300 million hotel, and maybe you know maybe the legal fees are even higher. Maybe you spent you know three four hundred thousand. When you divide that by a hundred investors, for example, in a regional center program, it's not a significant cost. But let's say you want to do a direct investment and it's five hundred thousand, you may have to go spend you know at the very least probably a hundred hundred fifty thousand dollars in in all the third party costs and legal costs. Um, you know, can can you talk about you know the direct investment? Are there ways where you know you maybe have a franchise model? And you, you know you've already created you know the, the administrator of that project has already done all the legal documents so you don't have to create that i think that that's a question a lot of investors ask can i just go create my own project and i think what they don't realize is all the costs that are associated with that 
Sure, and over the years, I've had a lot of investors who have come to me and they want to do their own project. They want to invest in their own business. So essentially, they want to do a direct EV5. Um, and when it comes down to it, when they see the legal costs involved, when they see the risk involved, they decide to ultimately go with a regional center program. And the reason is, is because when you're talking about someone starting their own business, managing their own business and, and all of that, you're attaching the success of the business to the success of your immigration application. So you're attaching the fact that you have to have the 10 jobs, the jobs created, the money invested, new commercial enterprise, the business has to be up and operating for a certain number of years. You have to be able to show the government this at I-829 phase. Um, so all those things are important to look at. And that's a big risk that investor who wants to do a direct program where they're actually investing into their own business is taking on. Whereas like you mentioned in the regional center, the documents are provided for you. There are experienced people looking after job creation. There are experienced people looking after the investment for you. So all of that is sort of taken off your plate and you can just invest in an experienced group and get your green card, hopefully get your money back after a certain number of years and you don't have all that risk associated. That being said, there are direct programs which they're not regional center programs, but they're structured like regional center programs. So they're completely passive. The company has put all the documents together. They have their own legal teams. And these are usually large scale companies, right? Like for example, there are publicly listed companies that are taking on EB-5 investors in a direct program or under a, the direct route. And so you can find projects that are direct projects that are structured similar to the regional center where the risk is sort of taken off your plate as an investor. It's a more passive investment. You're not actively involved. You have someone else creating the jobs for you. You have someone else putting the documentation together for you. So the cost of legal isn't skyrocketing either. And there are those options available under the direct program as well. But when people come to me, I, I often do, I'll admit that I do discourage people from doing a direct where they're investing in their own business until and unless that person is very experienced with what they're going to be doing. For example, they have a very successful business abroad. They want to do the same thing. Maybe they're a hotel developer from India, for example. I had a client that's a hotel developer from India who wanted to develop their own hotel in the US, and they're very well experienced with hotel development. Until and unless it's a situation like that, I don't normally encourage people to invest in their own businesses under the direct program. Right. I mean, but, you know, there's also a lot of intricacies. I mean, you know, just because you're a hotel developer in, in India, you know, the development rules, the, the licensing rules, permitting rules, franchise rules, all of that right. completely yeah. different in the U.S. So a lot of times I, I would encourage investors to, to get a co-developer or partner with someone in the U.S. that knows the local laws and not just in anywhere in the United States. Let's say you want to develop in Texas, get someone that knows the local zoning laws and development rules and, and, and you know the ins and outs in Texas. If you want to develop in New York, if you want to develop in Hawaii, make sure that you have someone that has that those local that local knowledge. But but you know I think I want to take a step back and talk about kind of the history of EB five, how it all evolved. You know, I think in nineteen ninety as part of the comprehensive immigration reform that 
that happened 31 years ago that hasn't happened since. The Immigration Act of 1990, Ted Kennedy was a very big proponent of the EB-5 program. I think at the time only Canada had an investment immigration program. We talked about it in the previous episode. Today there are more than 40 countries that have investment immigration programs. But at the time there weren't very many. I think Canada was the only one and the U.S. wanted to kind of model after the Canadian program. But, but you know, when they started the, the program in 1990, it wasn't a big success because investors from other countries would have to come here. They would have to learn the language. They would have to learn the local laws. They would still have to be very good at that business. And they would have to compete with locals that had been maybe doing that business for 30 years. And then at the same time, they would have to move their family, worry about putting their kids to school, figure out all the things that it, you know an immigrant has to do when they move to a new country. And on top of that, they have to work on the successful business and run it and make sure that the business lasted for two years. Otherwise, they, they would fail to get the green card. So it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of, uh, one, it, it, was, it was very tough for someone to come in and figure out the local law, language, and customs, and the business acumen to run those businesses. At the same time, you know, move their family and do all the things that new immigrants have to do. Hence, in 1993, uh, you know, Congress introduced the, the pilot program, which was, you know, for reauthorization every three years, which in 2015, we know that didn't happen. It's been, you know, short-term reauthorization for 21 times. But but the whole idea of the the pilot program was, you know, investors don't necessarily have to do all of this. They could come and, you know, essentially partner with regional centers, which are local companies, local for-profit and non-profit entities that can help them administer all of this on their behalf so they don't have to do this. And, you know, and, and that program became a lot more successful than the direct program. But really, it, it became very successful in doing the last downturn in 2007 when, you know, banks were not necessarily readily financing real estate projects. And the hardest part, uh, the hardest hit part of the U.S. economy after the 2007 Great Recession was construction jobs. Construction was hit, I think, something like uh, 30 to 50 percent of all construction jobs disappeared overnight. So hence, people that were trying to, you know, help economic activity were, were doing a lot of construction projects and hence using EB-5 financing. Now we're going back to kind of the original roots of EB-5 based on the creation that we had. So, you know, you still have that option, but, you know, the, the, the challenges or the challenges that existed in 1990, that it's really hard to have someone administer these, these investments from scratch, much easier to get someone that's already kind of, you know, set that up for you, done the legal documents, done all of that. And then, and then the other part is, let's say, you know, you have a very successful business in another country and you want to come invest the 500000 even if this, the business is completely successful and you break even or you get a small return, if you invest, you know, 200,000 in legal fees and all the third-party costs, off the bat, you lost 40% of your investment. So does it make sense for you, you know, and, and, and people are different. Some people really are hands-on. They want to have control of a project. They don't want to trust it to a third party. Others, you know, are thinking, okay, I'll put this 500,000 as long as I, 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 you know, picked the right investment. My time is more valuable. I can go, you know, my, you know, I'm an executive in an advertising firm, or, you know, I'm running my own fund. I can make much more money, and as long as I break even or, or I, you know, I make a small return in this investment, that's all I care about because this investment really isn't supposed to be an investment. It's supposed to be a tool for me to get residency for me and my family. Do I want to take that risk and change my entire business and and focus my entire career on this on this activity that's supposed to give me a great card? Or do I want to, you know, kind of focus that and let professionals do that? So those are kind of, you know, the decisions I think a lot of investors need to face. But it's different from family to family, and it's different from region to region. It's different for everyone. So I think those are a lot of thought process that has to go through. But investors need to think, you know, what makes the most sense for them and what's the right suitable investment for them and their family. And I think that is the right mindset to have with EB-5 is that 
it's not necessarily an investment to make a huge profit. It's an investment in your future or the future of your family. It's an investment to get the green card. And that sort of is the return on your investment is getting the green card, getting it quickly and efficiently. Um, it's affordable. And I think that's sort of the mindset that investors should have when they're looking into the EB-5 program. Yeah, I think the, the, the correct way to really look at it is the return on this EB-5 investment is a green card exactly. and it's a residency for you, for you and your family. So if you're you know, a successful fund manager and you're making 20% on your money, you really want to get in the business of, of uh, you know, creating jobs and creating um, you know, a business that it may not be your main business and you have to kind of dabble in it. Or do you want to you know, have a passive investment, have someone do that for you while you can, you know, invest your time in your own business that you're making a much higher return. And, and I think those are, those, are the, those are the thought processes that investors need to, to know. But more importantly, they need to understand that in order to get a green card, you have to generate economic activity and you have to create jobs. That's the deal. The U.S. government allows you to get the residency, qualify for the residency, but your end of the bargain is you have to generate economic activity and, and, and create those jobs. And, and I think um, you know, every, every investment is different and investors should really, really do their homework and partner with immigration attorneys, you know, and, and in some cases, you know, uh, financial experts to, to weigh in the, the merits of the investment and then also immigration attorneys to, you know, to value the merits of the immigration part. And I think sometimes investors make the mistake just because someone is an immigration attorney and knows ins and outs of what qualifies, what doesn't, they think they're also qualified to give them investment advice and they're not. So I think it's important for investors uh, to focus on getting the right advice from immigration attorneys to make sure that this qualifies and they can get their residency and this is the right fit for them. And they should also, you know, uh, consult with, with a financial expert, if it's a franchise, if it's a restaurant, someone that knows that business, to give them the, the, the advice on the investment itself. Um, could you maybe, um, I know we have maybe three minutes left, give us, um, you know, your, your, your advice in terms of what are, what are some of the things investors should pay close attention to and um, you know, what are some of the you know, red flags that they should maybe stay away from from investments that, could, that should be risky? Yeah, so exactly like what I've been saying for, for this episode is that people need to do their due diligence, right? They need to do their due diligence on the history, the history of the companies they're investing with, that they're working with. They have to look at the project, all the project documents. And the best people to weigh in on that, like you said, are immigration lawyers who can talk to you about the merits of the immigration process when it comes to the project you're thinking of investing in, and also financial experts that can weigh in on the merits of the actual investment. Because like we said, although it's an investment where the return is your green card, which makes the immigration process very, very important, you're also wanting to get your money back at the end. Even if you're not making a huge return, you want to get your initial investment back at the end of your immigration process. So it's important to get a financial expert to be involved in and to weigh in on that as well. And we definitely always encourage our investors, you know, get an outside attorney if you want to. I myself am a U.S. lawyer. I don't put myself out there as a U.S. lawyer to be actually, you know, we have third party lawyers that do the actual immigration process for us that weigh in for our investors outside of my company. Um, and we also tell them, you know, you're encouraged to get a financial expert as well to look at these investments and to see which one suits you the best. And that's definitely something, it's great advice that you gave. It's definitely something that every investor should look at. 
Yeah, I mean, my advice that I always give investors, you know, even in the regional center program, I think, you know, there's been instances of fraud. And I think the most important thing is, especially investors in foreign countries, I think they get distracted by brand names, like whether, you know, it's a Marriott Hotel or, you know, it's a, it's a Hilton or Hyatt. What I think a lot of people in other countries don't understand that these are just franchises, you know. You know, the, the company Hilton or Marriott or, or uh, Hyatt, they don't actually own these hotels. They're individuals that own these or individual, whether it's real estate investment trust or family offices or actual individuals that own these hotels. And they franchise, they use that brand name and they pay, uh, you know, they, they pay a franchise fee. So you could, you could have a Marriott, but it's not the full faith and credit of Marriott that's behind investment. You really need to do your, your due diligence to make sure whoever the sponsor is, someone that has the financial wherewithal, to, to do this, uh, you know, for example, Marriott Hotel or you know Hilton or Hyatt or whatever have you, and then uh, separately, I think the same thing on on the direct investments. You know, you may have some franchises that are world class franchises that are household names that everyone knows. Just because it has a franchise that's a big name attached to it, doesn't mean that particular investment is going to be uh, successful. You know, most of the direct investments are going to be you know franchise type of investments or restaurants. And the key, I think, in the United States, where we, you know, we always talk about it, location, location, location. If you have, a, you know, a very famous franchise in the middle of nowhere in a desert somewhere, it's not going to do as well that same franchise on Times Square in New York City. And and maybe a certain type of franchise may not do well in in New York City because that's not the type of you know restaurant, for example, or franchise people in New York would go to. So there's a lot of homework I think investors need to do. And my my tip is don't be fooled brand name, don't be fooled by a big franchise name. Make sure you understand what that specific investment is doing, what that particular the merits of that particular project, with that location, that exact investment. You know, make sure you do your homework or have someone that has expertise in that type of investment do the homework for you. But don't be fooled by brand names. I think that's the biggest tip I can give. I agree. Audience. So Priya, thank you for all the insight. Um, I think we could have talked about this topic for another hour. But uh, we're short on time. And I think a lot of investors, really, these are relevant questions a lot of our audience uh, want to know today. And, uh, you know, if there are other questions I think our audience has, you know, feel, please feel free to, to contact Priya and I. We'd love to discuss, uh, you know, the topics that we, uh, we talked about today in more detail. But I think over the next few days, there's definitely going to be uh, some some guidance from, you know, the USCIS, DHS, and potentially some deal, hopefully, on the, on the regional center side. But we'll find out a lot more in the next coming days. But in the meanwhile, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to Priya and I. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A, at stepglobalgroup.com or at Team Vaziri at the Investment Migration Report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.